Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Malt House Games Podcast. <clears throat> I have been clearing my throat all day. Same here. I think allergies, allergens are super high right now in Oklahoma. I can vouch for that. Which is a negative thing for us, especially you. Yes. Not as much for me, but welcome. I, I have this problem where I'm not allergic to anything, but I'm allergic to too much of everything. When I went into the allergist, I had no allergy reactions, and he's like, oh, yeah, you have the same thing I do. Where I'm not allergic to lawn clippings, but there's too many lawn clippings, like, in the air, I'll have an allergic reaction. Which is just mind-blowing that that's a thing that exists. It really is crazy. I'm just mind-blowing in general. I don't think that's true. That's very true. Welcome to the Malt House Games Podcast. We are a podcast all about tabletop games, board games, card games, role-playing games, RPGs, things of that sort. This is episode 75. I am your host, Delton, and with me today, as always, is my lovely wife and yellow player, Haley. Howdy, partner. So what have we been up to recently? You have been playing a lot of games and doing a lot of keyboard stuff. I have. I've been playing a lot of Magic the Gathering Arena with Brian. And then uh, really just a lot of Assassin's Creed Odyssey, which is pretty great. I did, however, and I'm going to shout this out because it's Ben. Uh, you listeners have heard of Ben Canellis. We talk about Ben. Hi, Ben. I feel like pretty often. He's our friend. We've had him on the show before. You should look into that episode. On his episode, he talked about a video game that he was helping produce. Well, it is in early access on Steam right now, and you can go pick it up to play. It is called Chaser, and there is a period, so C, period, H, period, A, period, through all of them, Chaser. Basically an acronym. Yes. Well, is it an acronym? I guess it would be an acronym, not an, an, an initialism. Well, I guess, yeah, it'd be yeah, an acronym. Yeah. And, and, yeah, okay. Anyway. <laughs> we know English. Add that to your definition book and smoke it. Exactly. Chaser is on Steam currently, and I'm going to read the real quick little two-sentence thing. You're on the run from an artificially intelligent robot that learns and adapts to every move you make. Keep moving and use your environment creatively to escape your increasingly proficient pursuer. So essentially, you're running from a robot. The game has you running automatically the whole time. You can basically activate something which means you'll stop and like pick up items or activate the consoles you're supposed to do to finish the game or you can jump and like move the camera but you can't speed up and you can't slow down you're just at a constant run you can also i guess you can slide as well to go under stuff like a slip and slide yeah under stuff and it breaks things but it's very very difficult i've been playing it a little bit and i haven't i've only put in like 30 minutes or so at this point but it's hard because you're like all right if i do this and this i'll get through it smoothly everything's fine but since this is all about machine learning and that robot learns from what, how you play, if you move very efficiently through everything, never make any mistakes, don't try to use any of the little contraptions that, yes, they slow you down, but they have potential to slow the robot down, then the robot learns how smoothly you're getting through, and that's how it's now going to travel. So it starts doing the same style that you do, which means your efficient running means now it's having an efficient run, and it is ever so slightly faster than you. This is like the definition of scaffolding when it comes to like instruction or teaching. Yeah. Where it just gets a little bit harder, a little bit harder, or you have less and less help as you go on. Yeah, essentially, yeah. yeah. It's very hard and you have to use your environment like creatively and try to do different things to kind of throw it off. And there's some spots that are easy to throw it off and others that it's hard, but it's definitely a really neat game. Uh, So far, I have enjoyed it. However, these games always frustrate me. Always. Any game like this where it's like, let's see if you can beat it. It's a challenge. I'm going to get mad at some point and be like, I'm done. I won't play it again. And then I'll play it again. But it's uh, like yeah. the impossible game. 
I've seen you yes. rage quit that so many times and yep. whenever it first came out and you just went right back to it. Yep, every time. That game is still stupid, but also great. But anyway, yeah, so good job, Ben. It's a really neat game. I am curious to see how far you can push the machine learning with complexities and screw-ups and all the little like intricacies in it, but definitely check it out on Steam. That's Chaser with a period between all the letters. An acronym. Basically. So I've done that, and then I got my tangerine, I'm sorry, not my tangerines, my Kiwi switches from the key company, and I got a PCB, which is like the circuit board for another little Ergo keyboard. It's going to be a super budget build. I think the PCB was like $35. The case will be like 60 and then I'll basically have a keyboard because I'll just have to, I guess, get keycaps or move keycaps around. But excited for that. I've been working on the switches. That's been my life. That's a good life to live. What about you, Haley? Been doing BJJ with Brian. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Trying to rip his ear off. Trying to rip his ear off. <laughs> so, uh, so we're really good at checking in with each other whenever we think the other one's hurt, or whenever we make a, a noise that maybe makes us sound like we've uh, hurt ourselves or are having trouble. Well, uh, so we're very in tune with each other. And yesterday he had me in a chokehold, and I like to kind of ride out the chokes to see how long I can last or to see... Uh, how I can get out of them because what Brian has taught me is that just because you're in a chokehold and feels uncomfortable doesn't necessarily mean that you're in danger. And so he had me in a chokehold yesterday and I was like, oh, yep, I need the tap. And normally we say tap, tap. Well, I go say tap, tap yesterday and my voice wouldn't come out. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> so I started flapping my arm. I ended up slapping him in the face three times. I felt so bad. I just couldn't speak. <laughs> That's a way to tap is to slap your sparring opponent in the face. <laughs> but <laughs> he got the picture. He, he let me out. He knew what was happening. He, he knew what was happening. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. And so that happened also, you know, like I said last time, I took on the education specialist role. Mm -hmm. And I made my first training video. And of course, I'm super nervous because my boss is like, make a training video. And, you know, being, me being me, I like to put in goofy, stupid stuff. Well, uh, so... In the training videos, like for an, a communication app that we use for clients. So basically, all of us clinicians can message from our work number, the admin counseling number. And so uh, in the training video, I used Delton's name. I made him a fake profile called Delta Dawn. So I'm sure you all know the Tanya Tucker song, Delta Dawn. Oh, we have a nickname for Delton because Delton's middle name is Dawn. So we call him, instead of Delton Dawn, Delta Dawn. And so I made this profile, Delta Dawn. I made this entire training video. Uh, and so like in the training video, which my boss loved, which I'm really happy for, but I'm like, I'm messaging Delta Dawn. I'm calling Delta Dawn just to show them how the app works. I show it to my boss. He says, I love it. The only thing I needed to do is put in, put in a disclosure that Delta Dawn is not a real client. And I said, Micah, I think everyone's going to know that. And he goes, why? And I said, it's the song. He goes, well, I know you and Mackenzie like had this reference. Mackenzie's one of my coworkers. And I was like, yeah, it's Delta Dawn is a song. And I started to sing it for him. He goes, well, I'm not really hip with the new music. I said, Micah, this came out in 1973. <laughs> He's so behind. <laughs> the funny part is, is how behind he is for his age. I know. He's he should know it. 51. And I'm like. He should know that song. I'm not into this new music. I'm like, Micah, <laughs> Tanya Tucker was 13 in 1973 or whatever when she recorded this. And so I sent it to him and he just sent me a bunch of emojis and the word no. So I don't think he got. He sent it like 30 seconds later, too. So I don't think he actually got into it like I feel like he should have. You need to embrace well, the Tanya Tucker. I don't know about that, but... So that was my two weeks. Slap Brian in the face and introduce my boss to Tanya Tucker. There you go. It's everything that you need. Yes. Everything that you need. Well-rounded two weeks. It was a well-rounded two weeks. 
the good thing about these past two weeks is we got some beers in house. Hell yeah, brother. Which one should we start with? Oklahoma or Arkansas? Let's start with the Arkansas. Ooh, we're going, we're going out of state today for the first beer. Need to so, quarantine for two weeks because we're going out of state. Right. Uh, this one is a uh, shout out to my coworker, Carly, and her Woo! boyfriend, Seth. Woo! They went to Arkansas. And their cat. And their cat, Frankie. They went to Arkansas to visit Seth's family, and she picked up some beers, and we did a beer trade for a beer that we've been enjoying, that we've been drinking, which was that Neon Shades from yes. Tups. And she gave us this one. It is from Lost 40 Brewing out of Little Rock, Arkansas. This is the Look See Hefeweizen. It is Arkansas-owned beer company. 4.5% alcohol by volume. It is a wheat beer. Um, here we go. Seasonal wheat beer, Look See Hefeweizen. With sunny notes of orange, banana, citrus, clove. Brewed to be sipped in the sun during or while planning your next away day. I've never heard the term away day like that. I like that. Uh, and then it says recycle. All right. So we got to actually take the tinfoil off your windows so we can sit in the sun. There's a little patch of it off there toward like the middle. That way I can open the window and leave some room open down bottom, which means there is no tinfoil for like one fifth of that window. Oh, snap. Let that west sun in. No, because then it's hot. And it's hot enough in here with my gaming computer as an, like a heater. Look like Delton was about to pour the whole glass into his, and I was like, excuse me. Excuse me. All right, let's mm. give this thing a whiff. See how it smells. It actually does smell like bananas. You do get a lot of banana in this one. Now, wheat beer always kind of has that, not banana, but you can tell it's a wheat beer by smell, but you do get a lot of banana on top of it. It's that complex carb smell. No, yeah. Like bread smells or like banana smells, but not like gummy worm smell. Does that make sense? That's very true. It's got a deep golden color. You can't really see through it. It's pretty hazy. You kind of get artificial banana up front. It's clean, smooth, not too carbonated, doesn't leave a lot of foamy mouthfeel, and finishes really simple. Yeah, it tastes like a, so you know like the runts banana? Mm-hmm. That's what it tastes like. It is weird that it has that much of a kind of banana flavor. And I should say, like an artificial banana flavor. It doesn't taste like a real banana. It tastes like the like candy banana. Like Rents. But it's actually really good. It's a super smooth beer, and it's really light. Definitely. Yeah, it's pretty dang good, actually. I like that. Nice and simple. Well, there you go. That is the Look-See Hefeweizen from Lost 40 out of Arkansas from Little Rock. Clink, 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 clink. clink. We had to struggle way too much for that clink. We really did. We sit too far apart. But <laughs> or we don't stretch well enough. Both. Probably both. Well, the good thing is with this beer, it's a nice, simple beer. It is not very complicated. Simple beer, not too clear. Brings us cheer. I was saying it's not complicated, unlike our game. Ah. Oh, here's the door. It's straight ahead. It's, it's a game. So the game for today, we are getting at... Uh, what kind of is considered a classic now, or at least a top-tier game, it's always in the top 100 on BoardGameGeek, if that's something that you care about. It's highly rated, it's complicated, it is something a lot of people love. It is Zulkin the Mayan Calendar. Zulkin the Mayan Calendar is put out by Czech Games Edition, otherwise known as CGE. It is designed by Daniel Tessini and Simone Luciani. Illustrations by Milan Vavron. Graphic design by Philip Mermack, translation by Jason Holt, and the main testers were Peter Mermack and Vit Vodica. So Tzolkin is a take on worker placement. 
So as we've described in our, if you listen to our introductory episode about different terms, worker placement is you take a little worker, usually a pawn or what they call a meeple, a little person-shaped pawn, and you place it somewhere. You're placing your worker and then you get a resource. This game changes that take by actually, I don't want to say it matters more, but when you remove your worker is more important than when you place it, generally. So this is a worker placement game. Now, the big key to this game that just makes it so interesting and different than everything else is it has a system of gears. There is a large center gear that turns after every single round and it adjusts all the small gears, making your actions potentially more and more valuable up until you can lose out if you're not careful. So the way the game is going to work is you place a worker on one of the small little gears, and when you place them, you have to pay a certain amount depending on where they go, or if you place more than one in a turn, you have to pay kind of thing. And then you kind of let them ride. You go turn to turn, placing and picking people up, the longer someone stays on a gear as the gear turns, the better the reward's going to be when you decide to pull that person off of that gear. You can do different things to anger the gods, but mostly you'll be moving up the god tracks, which is a way to get points at the end of the game. You can build some buildings and monuments and things that help you get different resources, such as the food you need to feed your people twice in the game, or wood to do, build different buildings. You can get stone. You can have a little bit of a long-term play with the crystal skulls and the little bit, I guess it's like the medium-sized gear, but that's essentially how the game's going to play. I mean, I don't want to go into super, super detail of it, but you'll, you're putting people down and letting these gears turn and then picking them up whenever the gear has turned to make it either exactly what you want it to be on or just more valuable in general. It's definitely a game of patience. Patience and planning. Patience and planning, because... You're not going to get exactly what you want the first round. You're probably going to have to wait two or three rounds before you can even start to get things that are really beneficial. I mean, the first couple of rounds, you can uh, pick up some food for your people or you can pick up some resources. But the thing is, uh, you can, like Delton said, you can either place or pick up. So if you place your things, you're at least going to have to wait one more turn to pick up. If you pick yep. up your things, you're not going to have anything on the board to be able to pick up next, next game. So then you have to place. Then you have to place. And every ground, you either have to pay, play or you have to pick up. And so it's it's very much a planning game. It, but the good thing is, like, the rounds go very quickly. They so do. How, how long did it take us to play that game? Uh, I could look exactly, but I want to say uh, for both of us playing, was it like an hour 15? I think so. And then how many rounds do we go through? What? So there's four different um, seasons, but then there's eight rounds i think there's seven between each of the four big markers on the large gear so i think that's like 28 yep 28 rounds i think you go through tw about 28 to 30 rounds yep because two of them are reward rounds where if you're high up on the like tracks for the gods you get rewards based on where you're at and the other two are feeding where you have to have enough food to feed your people so you think an hour 15 sounds like a long time but when you're playing mm -hmm. 28 rounds in that they're really quick rounds but the thing is you still have to plan for those rounds so yeah. if i'm wanting to buy a crystal skull in order to do uh make an offering to the gods or use one of the offering tracks i have to wait to get the crystal skull but i also have to wait then to be able to get the points on the offering track exactly so there's all kinds of long-term planning i think that's what makes this game so interesting is like with the crystal skull strategy right 
uh, I think the one place that you can easily get a crystal skull, it's on one of the dials. Looks like the gray one. If you place a worker, it's at least four turns, at, at most four turns, and then you can get that crystal skull. Then if you want to place the crystal skull, you can wait up to, I'm going to do a quick, like you can wait up to the ninth turn after that. So that's 13 turns to hit the highest point crystal skull placement if you did not start the game with the crystal skull. That is almost half the game, 13 yeah. turns so, out of 28. And there's ways to fudge that because the monuments and buildings you can build in this game they have abilities like Haley had one that said uh, it's like a, a technology upgrade. There's a couple technology tracks that are really simple, but it said that when you're on a track on the blue one and you take a reward or you uh, pull a person off, you can act, act as if you're pulling him off from the next space up. So the higher value space. So that was a way Haley could kind of fudge that a bit, but it's really neat that you have to do that really long-term planning in this and focus a bit. Which is difficult. And I mean, the thing is, the game is rated at 90 minutes, and it, they say it's that for two to four players. And I kind of see that as being pretty true because of how easy a turn is and how quickly the game moves. Not to mention, if you take the first player token, you have the option at the end of that day, as long as it won't push anybody's pawns, workers off the gear, you have the option to move that center gear two times. So basically, passing one turn for the game one round and everybody can do that once and only if they reach the top of one of the like you know god tracks or whatever can they then reset to be able to do it again so you could turn those 28 turns into only 24 if everybody just decides to do that and that is a significant increase in speed for this game it really is even though there's all those turns and or rounds it just i mean skipping four it makes things happen so much faster. It's so strange to see, like you actually see time go by in this game. Yeah. And like, though there's 28 rounds or 28 turns, you're probably going to spend half of those trying to acquire food. Oh, definitely. We, I feel like we were very bad at food. Yes, we were very bad at food. And like, normally that's my priority. Like I know we've talked about it in past episodes, like mm -hmm. feeding your people. That's normally my priority. And I tried to make it so this time. And even so, there was one point where I had to, where I, I made the gods mad because I had to beg for food, and so I got negative three points. Yeah, I remember you doing that, because you can. You can beg if you don't have enough food at the beginning of your turn. You have to have so little, then you can beg and do that, and everything's fine after that. So one of the things with placing your workers, I know in the beginning I said, when you place a worker, you can place multiple in the same turn. You must pay for the space they're placed on in corn, which is the same thing you feed your people with, and you must pay depending on how many of those workers you place. Now, what's interesting about this is whenever you place a worker on a gear, you have to place it in the next available slot. You can't just go and place it at the end in the high value. So there is a zero cost spot to place a worker. Then there's a one, a two, a three, a four. So if Haley had placed on the zero the turn before, the gear's turned and now her person's on the one. I can pay the extra to play two people, place one on the zero, and place one now on the two spot, putting me ahead of Haley, allowing my person to move further faster. Because unless you have a special technology, you have to place it on the lowest ranking spot on the dial. You exactly. can't pay up to place it on the last one or on the one that you want. You have to pay on the one that is, that is open soonest. Exactly. And so it is beneficial to kind of tag on to where everybody else is playing because you can get higher value quicker. However, it's going to cost more doing so. So you really have to balance out and like, on, like the, when, this game is worker placement but resource management 
you really have to manage your resources, manage your corn that you're going to be spending and feeding your people and make sure to maintain and keep track of everything. So it's a really, really interesting take on worker placement. And I find myself really wanting to play this one again. The only thing I wish, I love that it's, you know, the Mayan calendar, the gears have those little etchings on them. They're not super, I mean, I guess they are pretty intricate, but they're just a plastic. I wish I had, like, I've seen people paint them to make them gorgeous. But I love the idea of the theme and it's the Mayan calendar, but I do wish that the theme came out in the play more because that's my only complaint with this one. I was excited. I was like, oh, cool. Turn these gears and you get the crystal skulls and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's kind of, it's a very mythologized Mayan civilization kind of feel in the artwork and stuff. But to me in the game, this is one of those games. I love games that have no theme that are really good games. But this one is one I wish the theme came out more. I wish you could feel it. Right. Like I said, you have like the Mayan calendar part and that's, mm-hmm. that's integral in the game. Yeah. But I mean, getting food. That's in all a worker placement games, just yeah. about resource management. Getting some ore, ma- getting Get, new workers. Getting new workers. Like, even if it had like flavor text in it or some sort of history behind it. Because that's the thing. I know we've talked about this in the past. Anytime that you, it's, you always have to be, need to be sensitive whenever you're using another culture in a board game. Always. And so just having some even flavor text to explain the culture or something more in the the rule book to kind of talk about the history of why this is significant or why this is used or what does this have to do with the Mayan calendar? I feel like that would be helpful, not only in being culturally sensitive, but also immersing the players in the game. I agree. And it's not that I think this is done poorly or anything. No, not at all. But you can tell that this game was released in 2012, 2013. It looks like 2013, uh, some kind of spiel, uh, some kind of German award for expert game in 2013. Can't read that far. Mine eyes can't see. <laughs> Thine eyes can't see. Mine eyes. You can you can tell it's an older game because games now, games now are focusing harder on making the theme part of the game. And I normally, like, it's not that I, I'm going to play this game again. I really yes. want to play this game again because I really like this game. I think it's super interesting. But we've only played it the one time. So there is that little caveat in there that, I, I don't have enough experience to truly understand the full game, but I want to because I really enjoyed it. I just, I really do wish that the theme came forward more. Yes. And that's the only thing that I found so far that I'm just like, well, this is the one thing I want. You're like, oh, cool, Mayan calendar. And then you play it and you're like, oh, well, I didn't even think about that while we were playing at all. You're just like, I oh, turned the giant disc. That's the coolest part is turning that gear. Yeah. Watching everything move. That's just such an interesting take. Yes. And it's, it's unique. And yeah. It's fun, too, to be able to turn those gears. I mean, we all know how gears work. We've t- we were forced to take the ASVAB in high school. Yep. If you turn one to the right, any connected are going to turn to the left. We basically how That's everything basically works. basically how it works. But, and, and so it's fun, and that is a really neat part of it. But I think, like Delton said, integrating the theme more into the mechanics, into the cards, and the text, I think would be helpful. I think so. I just think that it would make the game a little more appealing. This has the same downfall that Castles of Burgundy has. Mm-hmm. The color scheme doesn't stand out. It's not super bright and colorful. It's kind of all muted. And it just, it needs to have a revamp, a version two. Let's release a new Sulkin where it's just drop dead gorgeous. Throw it on Kickstarter only for the fact that you can get like awesome 3D printed gears that are all different colors and something like that. You know it's really drop dead gorgeous? What? You. Hate you. Hate you so much. <laughs> anyway, Sulkin's a really cool game. I really enjoy it. It's such an interesting take. And 
I don't know. It does something just different for me in my brain. And it's not that it's a hard game to play. Everybody makes it sound harder than it is. But I think it's one that's definitely worth checking out. There's just something about it that made it stay on the to-be-played shelf for so long. Hey, what can I get you? I'd like a topic. Any special way? Make it a top-shelf topic. Coming up. Enjoy. So before we dive into this topic, let's crack the next beer. This is from Mountain Fork Brewery in Hochatown, Oklahoma. We had their Sneaky Snake on. Sneaky Snake. Very recently, maybe last episode, actually. This is The Rooster. It is their Mexican-style lager. On the side of the can, it says light, crisp, and refreshing. Our getaway beer, as we like to call it. Tastes sweet with a hint of bitter at the end. This beer is great when paired with salt and lime. A perfect choice for people who are new to craft beer. Ooh. That's because the Mexican lager is such a solid style of beer. Yes. It's always good. It's always refreshing for the most part, unless you get, you know, something like a skunky Corona. Like a Corona that's been left in the glass bottles in the sunlight for about six weeks. Ooh, look at that head. Oh, my gosh. This is the lightest color beer ever. Like, it just looks crisp as you're pouring it. Even the head looks crisp. Beer me. Beer me some beer. That is a beautiful beer. Like, the the foam is just magnificent. Like, the the head is just super duper, not even, like, creamy. You know, like, a a lot of darker beers are creamy. Like, it's very light. It looks like a sponge sitting on top of your beer. It looks like you're taking a bath. It does, like a bubble bath. It is. So it is a super clear, I mean, it looks like lemonade with a haze to it. Yes. And a head. That's the color here. It's it's a pale, pale, light yellow. It looks like your country time hasn't been mixed properly yet. That's basically it. If you give it a whiff, it definitely smells like that light crisp. What do you got, Haley? She's got something on her head. She's trying to come up with something clever. Clever? <laughs> I am clever. It, mm. it smells like fresh water. You know, whenever you're you're at a lake and you're like, or at a stream and it's the fresh water, so not like the, mm-hmm. not like an Oklahoma lake. Yeah, like real water. Like real water. Not mud. Like you're going to like eastern Oklahoma or you're going to Colorado, like a, like a Colorado stream, you know? Yeah. If you just feel the water and you smell it, like it tastes, it smells like a fresh water. I have that with like a little, this is going to be a really negative thing. I have that with a little bit of cleaner. See, I don't say, take the cleaner. What I, kind of cleaner? Maybe it's just your glass is dirty. No, because I used this glass a second ago and didn't have that. It has a little bit of a hint of like uh, whatever that method daily shower spray that we have is. Whatever fruit or whatever. Oh, it's like eucalyptus. Something like that. I got a hint of that in here. That's better. It's like it's a fresh water and eucalyptus. But in my brain, it smells like cleaner. (laughs) (laughs) Because we use that hippie shit to clean our showers. Mm -hmm. It's a super, super foamy Mm. in the mouth. Very, very light. Like, it's lighter than soda. It is lighter than soda, and it kind of has almost a sour aftertaste. It does have a small, small bit of tang in the very, very back. This would be an easy-to-guzzle-down summer beer. Yes, it would. I don't even know what the alcohol percentage is. Uh, It is not in excess of 4%. That is why it's so light and crisp. There's, like, no alcohol content. (laughs) Good thing we're doing this now because we only have three days until fall. That's true. We got to get rid of the summer beers. Clink, clink to the last three days of summer. And one more clink for the game, because I approve. Sulkin. All right. Sulkin. So for the topic today, 
as Haley kind of alluded to there, leaving the game segment of the show. Zolkin stayed on our To Be Played show for a while, and I want to say it's been almost two years. I think so. Which is a bit. And now given, I have a good length of games, a good amount of games on my game shelf. All of them have something in common with Zolkin. Every single one of them are rated at least an hour and a half gameplay. So, with that being said, our topic today that we wanted to talk about was intimidating games, or what makes games intimidating. Because I feel like this is something that's also, not that it means to be, but it can be a gatekeeping. Like, games can be intimidating when you look at them. When you go into a game, I mean, I remember the first time Delton took me into a game HQ down in Oklahoma City. Like, holy crackers, there are so many games. I felt like I did not belong. And you know, now that I'm in the hobby, like, I, I come to know what kind of games I like. I've played, God, 400 different games, 500 different games. We've played a lot. A lot of games. But still, like, even though I've been immersed in the hobby for the last eight years, I still find things intimidating about games, even if I understand them. So, Delton, what's something that makes games intimidating for you? Because you kind of feel the same way sometimes. I really, really do. So, I made a little list here, and I figured we could talk about this. Um, It's very short. And if you have any you want to add, feel free. We can do it however you would like. So, one of the big things that I have already mentioned about my 2B Played shelf is the length of play can make a game intimidating. And this isn't just to say that, you know, Zulkin says 90 minutes on the box. That's not bad. An hour and a half, that's not bad at all. I mean, heck, sometimes we'll sit and play, you know, patchwork three or four times. And then at that, by the time we play it, I guess four times and we're probably at an hour, maybe a little under. But we've done that. We've played an hour and a half straight of small games. So that's not really an issue. But when it comes to these bigger games, something like Zulkin, it's not just the length of play of the playtime itself. It is, at least coming off the to be played shelf, is it also has to take into play setup, especially first time, and learning to play the game. So I think the biggest thing is you're afraid of commitment. I am. <laughs> you're lucky. You're lucky I married you. But I am. I am. It's, it's the fact of, okay, I really want to play this off the to be played shelf. Well, first I need to read the rule book. Well, rule books for games like this, I mean, I can look at this one. It's a booklet. It's not like a... Candyland, where it's a sheet of paper or two. This is a booklet of rules. This one goes to 14 pages total. Now, obviously, those come with pictures and things, but if you've ever tried to read a rule book by itself with no game in front of you, it's a different experience than reading it with the game in front of you, especially because you can, you can touch things, you can move pieces, you can explain by pointing, you can look at stuff. It makes it easier. But if you consider, okay, I want to play Sulkin tonight. We've decided to play it. We're starting. I get the game out, I get the rule book out, I follow the initial setup, I go through the rules with you while reading the book, making sure we both understand, then we start the game, proceed to try it 90 minutes because it's brand new, and everything, by that point, a 90 minute game has become a two and a half to three hour game. And that's just kind of the way these big games work. If I would have read the rule book at work, and been like, okay, I have a basic understanding, then I still have to teach you the game. And so now, I have come to the point where I would rather learn the game as I'm setting it up, and then read those rules off in spurts, like of important facts to you together, rather than me learn the game completely separately, and then me teach you completely separately. Kind of morphing those in together makes it easier for me. But that's something I find makes big games intimidating. Now, smaller games, not nearly as much. No, we played Calico, which Calico is also a cat. And so I love the theme, but we played Calico the day we got it in. We played it yep. probably four or five times that week. Yes. Played it a lot. Which brings me to what I find intimidating in games is often theme. And this is just something, for some reason, I, 
I cannot shake. Like, logically, I know that the theme does not make the game. Logically, I know that if it's more, if it's kitty cats, doesn't mean that it's going to be any more or less difficult than something that is medieval. Yeah. I mean, look at Root. Root is cute as a bug. It is difficult as heck, right? Yeah. But for some reason, there's this part in my brain that I look at like a medieval or a fantasy themed game and I automatically say, oh, that's going to be very difficult. That's going to be intimidating. And I don't know if it is like, I've, I've just associated that with board games before I became a board gamer and it just seemed like it we weren't on the same level or what. But anytime I see like a, a fantasy or a medieval theme, I just think, oh, this is going to be difficult. I don't know if I could do this. And I yeah. do. Like, and I've played Root, and Root's 10 times harder than most medieval and fantasy games I've played. But for some reason, that is just something that's intimidating to me. I think that's a, a, a fair statement, though, because, I mean, the simple family games aren't themed that way. And the really complex, difficult games to appeal to that fan base aren't themed cute and cats and things like that. No. So it, it, it is the, the artwork itself is generally indicative of the type of game you're going to get. If you pick up the box for, you know, Kung Fu fight and it's cute little cats and dogs, you can kind of tell, okay, this isn't going to be too complicated. But if you pick up something like a feast for Odin and it's a bunch of Vikings, you immediately know this is probably going to be, more complicated. And right. there are spaces in between. Uh, what was that Viking game? I think it was by Blue Orange, where you were painting the shields on the boats. Vikings on board. Vikings on board. That one is a surprisingly light game with a Viking theme. But that one is, by artwork, distinguishable from A Feast for o Odin, you know? There's things like that. Um, but that's a very, very true point. The, the artwork itself can make a game seem intimidating because you're so used to how artwork is used in board games. So my next one, I'm going to put in two parts. One is complexity. The games that are more complex, I am always concerned that they're going to be too complex. And I'm going to feel stupid. And when we sat down at Gen Con on like day three, we were tired, sweaty. You had a horrible headache. And we sat down and had someone explain Lisboa to us. I had no clue what was happening. Had no clue what was going on. I even based on what he said, I was like, I don't get this at all. But that's also, you know, a super complicated game. But that's why I've owned it for I don't know how many years now, like three, four, and have never once attempted to actually learn it and play it. I want to. I really, really want to. But it's that like, I'm not gonna get it figured out. I'm gonna take forever. The time sink to learning and teaching and playing the game is gonna be too long. I'm not gonna want to go through that. It's all of that together based more on complexity for this one. It just, I don't want to play a game and be like, I don't get it. I feel stupid. And then I'm like, oh, all these people that like this game, they're way smarter than me. So I'm the dummy. And I feel like that's something that can happen. Something uh, that is a valid way for people to feel. I think everybody can get every game. It just might take a certain situation for it to click. Yeah. However, even knowing that, I still feel this way. My second part to that is the social pressure. And I do feel like this is a big thing in the board game industry, and I feel like it's something nobody talks about, but there is a social pressure for you to like, quote unquote, good games. Yes, there is. Yeah. And I understand because there are games that everybody loves. Why do they love them? They're stinking good. That's the reason everybody plays Azul. Azul's a good game. But if you played Azul and you hated it, that's fine. That's not a big deal. However, you might say, well, I don't want to play it. I don't think I'm going to like it. 
because now that game has turned into kind of an, not, not maybe not necessarily intimidating is the best word there, but it's kind of an inti- intimidating thing because you don't want to feel like the one person who doesn't enjoy it. Like Gloomhaven. I know it's been on the top of BGG. I have no interest in playing Gloomhaven. And I feel like I have failed the board gaming industry as a son. That's true. I would play it if someone brought it and said, hey, let's play. I'm not going to spend $100 on it because I don't care for that style of game. I would rather just play a role-playing game and be able to, you know, role-play, do all that kind of stuff. But that's exactly it. If you don't like Gloomhaven, well, now it's like, oh, you don't like Gloomhaven? It's the same way I feel with a bunch of anime nerds when I say I don't like Cowboy Bebop. I get railed. Everybody acts like it's the craziest thing for me not to like that anime. And it's one of the reasons, like, I kind of like bringing it up now because I think I'm the one person who thinks that's fine. I don't really care for it. I've never finished it because I couldn't get into it. leads to a discussion of people going, no, 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 no. And then, like, we just sit back and watch and they're all talking about Cowboy Bebop and how amazing it is. And we're just like. And I'm just like, okay, there's a Corgi. That's the best part of the show. It's a really cute cute Corgi. There's a cute Corgi and stuff. But it's the same thing with board games is that there is a pressure to like what people perceive, what majority of people perceive as good. And I just think that 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 needs to be put to rest a little bit in everything. People need to calm the hell down. But that's one of the reasons I have so much stuff on my shelf. Part of it is I haven't played, you know, uh, Mombasa because I'm afraid that, A, it's complex. It's going to take a while to learn. It's going to be hard to teach. It's a big time sink. I hope I understand because it's a fairly complex game. And I hope I like it because people say it's such a good game. But if I don't, I've also now spent money on it, which is one of those things that can be thrown in. But all of that together, to me, makes these games kind of intimidating to get down. And I just want to clarify, when we say intimidate, we don't mean that we don't like it. We just mm-hmm. mean that, like, it keeps us from wanting to try it. Yeah. Like, it, it's, it's scary. <laughs> it's the same reason people don't skydive. Yeah, it's intimidating. It's, it's a scary thing. But when you do it, some people say it's exhilarating and the coolest thing they've ever done. But it's horrifying. I mean, given this is an extreme example, but yeah. And so speaking of, you know, you said the social pressure, uh, this is my, my last one I want to talk about. Co-op games yeah. are so intimidating to me. I don't mind coming in last place whenever it's just me playing, but whenever I've let the whole team down, <laughs> oh my God, I feel terrible. And so like the first, and it's usually only the first time I play it, like the first time I play any kind of co-op game, I am nervous as can be because I'm learning this thing. I'm going to ruin it for my team. The aliens are going to take over and destroy us, and it's going to be my fault because I didn't have the right card or I didn't play them in the right order. And it just scares the hell out of me, especially whenever we play this with like friends or playing at conventions. Like, oh, let's play this uh, co-op game. I'm like, you are going to hate me. Like, that's my own anxiety coming out. And it always turns out fine. Like, even if I do screw it up, like, no one is ever like, oh, you're so dumb, or I'm never going to play with you again. But I just get so like when we played Captain Sonar at uh. Cabin Con? Yep. Like, I was so scared. I didn't know what the hell I was doing, and I made a mistake, and I felt so bad. And, like, I'm, I'm sure nobody remembers the mistake I made. But the, exactly. I don't even remember what it is. But, man, it just intimidates the crap out of me. Captain Sonar is one of those games that was intimidating because they say it's best in lifetime and it's best with a full eight. Our first time playing the full Captain Sonar was in lifetime with a full set of eight. At, like, midnight. And that is one of the few times I have played a game and immediately been mad because I felt like having not played it, I was at a severe disadvantage and ruining it for my team. And I also felt yeah, and I also like I <laughs> felt like I did not care for the game nearly as much as I thought I would. Part of it because I felt so underskilled at it 
and people felt so much higher skilled, even only having played it a few times, that I felt like it just wasn't worth playing at the time anymore. Like it very, very rarely do I get so frustrated with an experience. And that was one, even though the game is awesome. I just think it was the wrong, wrong place, wrong time. Wrong. Great friends. Like we, it was we, great people to play it great with. Great people to play it with. I just think that game is not for me, honestly. I think both of us were also on the same side too. So it's like four experienced players versus two experienced players and a Haley and a Delton. I don't remember, but yeah. I was so sweaty. Right. I was so sweaty. <laughs> I got so mad. But I think that kind of wraps up the topic here. Games can be intimidating. Don't be intimidated. There are ways to get around it. As a therapist, I say your feelings are validated, Delton, if you feel intimidated. Okay. Valid feelings. Intimidation is valid, however. Is valid. We can move past it. We can. And now, join us for a Malt House Games Podcast special bite-sized question. So for the question today to wrap up this episode, it is going to be, how do you overcome the intimidation of playing a new game off the shelf or playing a game at all? So for me, my answer is going to be, I just kind of have to do it. If I put it, if I look at a game and go, I really want to play this, I really want to play this a lot, it will eat at me. Solkin has, I've been wanting to play this for the last several weeks, and I finally said, we're going to play it because I keep thinking about playing it. I've looked at it. I've looked at the rule books. I've punched all the tokens. I've got to this point. I just have to sit down and do it or it's going to drive me nuts. And we did. And it took a while to get through learning and the teaching and the setup and the gameplay. But now not only do we have podcast content, but I enjoy the game a lot. And so it's one of those things where for me, I almost have to like (laughs) sort of build up the courage kind of, but I just had to build up until I could say, all right, we're just going to do it. Let's do it. And so, like, you think about intimidation. Intimidation stems from anxiety, right? Yeah. And what does anxiety want you to do? Does anxiety want you to hit something head on? No. Want you to avoid, right? Yeah, I avoided it as long as I could. And so, the longer you avoid it, does your intimidation go up or down? I think it goes down. I know you're going to say up, but in terms of board games, it goes down. In terms of everything else in life, I think it does go up. Because it's like, I'm scared of this. I'll stay away. So you're now reinforcing that behavior. Yeah. So like with the to be played shelf, like the longer we take not not taking another game off, the more intimidation goes up, the more it starts to, to bug us. So that's true on a whole for me. The reason I said it goes down is because if I focus on one game, I can push through. I was going to get to that point. Does that make sense? Yeah, I was going to get there. Oh. I was going to get there. Well, there you go. We're here. We're already here. <laughs> You're already here. So Delton does, you know, you can, you can overcome things by either psyching yourself up by talking yourself through it, like yep. like Delton says, you know, uh, thinking about the game, psyching yourself up for it, um, trying to make yourself excited or looking forward to it or really immersing yourself and thinking about it. Or you can do the behaviors of just doing it. You can't change your feelings. You can only change your feelings through your actions and through your thoughts. So psych yourself up for the game or just like do it. Just try it. That's what I do. And yeah. I see a game um, and I have all these thoughts like it's too much. I'm not going to do well. Uh, I'm going to fail for my team and I'm going to sink my my own sub on Captain Sonar, I just, I got to push through it. So you're more of the thought person. I'm more of the, all right, I just got to like embrace it head on, do it now. That makes sense. Well, I think that that is going to wrap up this episode. Before we go, let's make sure to do our Patreon shout outs. So thank you so very much to Allison, Alan, Jesse, Catherine, Cliff, and Jennifer. Yeah. You are all awesome for supporting us. Thank you so much. If you want to be like them and support us in 
keeping the content going and improving our equipment over time. It is patreon.com slash malthousegames, M-A-L-T-H-A-U-S games. If there are any games you want us to look at for the podcast, questions to answer or topics for us to cover, or just any in general questions or comments for us, please send those to contact at malthousegames.com. You can also find us on all social media at Malthouse Games, M-A-L-T-H-A-U-S Games. You can find me at Delton Brack, D-E-L-T-O-N-B-R-A-C-K. You can find Haley at S-Q-U-I-R-R-E-L-Y-G-E-E-K. That's at Squirrely Geek. Then make sure to go on, give us a five-star review on iTunes if that's where you're listening. Give us a review anywhere you can. Like, share, and subscribe, please. It helps more people find the podcast, and if you're enjoying it, somebody else may as well. It always freaks me out, though, whenever I meet somebody in real life who actually listens to our podcast. It's a little weird. It's a little weird. Yep. I like it, though. It is a little weird. I like that weirdness. <laughs> Keep it up, y'all. There we go. <laughs> Thank you again for tuning in and listening to the Malthouse Games Podcast. Until next time, sit back, relax, grab a drink, and play some games. We'll see you folks later. Bye. Bye. Bye.